all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View, episode 483. We're going to talk about reintroductions. And what I like about this episode is that it is not just about a phase of AIP, I think for most of our listeners at one point or another in our lives, we've done an elimination diet of some kind, whether for health purposes or because we thought that that's what some diet guru told us to do for an unknown reason. Um, And then when we come back to reintroducing these foods, it can be really important to do it the right way so that we learn from our bodies, we listen to our bodies, and we're incorporating like the most nutrient-dense foods first, especially in the case of something like AIP, where you've eliminated a large group of foods. Um, And I think this is something that is often not talked about or focused on. Like we talk a lot about okay, why why would we want to see how our bodies feel if we're taking away things that are potentially inflammatory um, or causing an autoimmune response or those kinds of things? But like the goal is to help your body feel good enough where it can handle hopefully at least some limited amounts of these foods without it kind of building up to more inflammation or problems. So I love that we're kind of visiting this and hopefully empowering people to try. I mean, I think I was surprised when I saw Megan's question come in. I was like, oh, surely, surely we've covered this in a methodical way in sometime in the last nine plus years of podcasting. And when I realized we hadn't really talked about reintroductions, either in the context of the autoimmune protocol in a really like rigorous way, but also why this is something that is generally applicable. I think there's a lot of missed opportunity to do reintroductions in this sort of formulaic methodical way that can really help identify whether or not an individual food is promoting health for you or undermining health for you or causing a big reaction for you, right? There's a, there's kind of a spectrum there. And that's one of the reasons why I thought this was such a great topic to cover this week, because the the tool here is so broadly applicable. I mean, this is uh, what an allergist would call an elimination and challenge diet. It is a major tool in both conventional medicine and alternative medicine. And the the trick is to to approach it in this very sort of scientific experiment kind of way so that you are really homing in on what is your bio-individual reaction to certain foods, right? And there's there's definitely foods that are more likely to be problematic for more people. We just see that the frequency of different types of reactions are higher, but there is, you know, some 
genetic diversity, that means that some of these foods may work for you and some of them might not. And some of them might work for you sometimes. And the way that we get at that is through what in the AIP we teach as being methodical reintroductions. All right. Well, I guess that leads us to Megan's question. Um, Would you like me to read it this week just for our listener's sake as we um, are battling getting feeling better. I think there's a, there's a blooper that might give you a little more insight into how Sarah's feeling. Um, yeah, if you can't tell by the froggy voice, I'm, I'm getting over a, a head cold. So yes, I would, gifted, I would love a week off. Gifted by question. your teenager. It was a special gift so, that she gave so you. So special sharing is caring. <laughs> not, not actually when it comes to germs. Okay. <laughs> Megan asks, what food have you been able to reintroduce, Dr. Sarah? What are common foods that people succeed with? I've been working with the AIP for a little over a year now, and the autoimmune community is so supportive and helpful with eliminations. Now that my doctor and I have made so much progress with correcting my dysbiosis, it's almost time for starting the reintroduction phase. But nobody talks very much about this part. For me, I've been reacting to almost everything that's removed on the AIP and the Crucifer and Umbellifer families. I want to know what others have successfully reintroduced, but there's not much talk about that online. I know that everybody is different, but how much can someone expect to expand? What are the areas that most people have trouble with? Reintroduction feels lonely right now. Oh, poor Megan. I know. Hopefully, um, the discussion on this podcast will help it feel a little bit less lonely because it is the second phase of the autoimmune protocol. So we talked about this in episode 377 a little bit. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to like really very, very briefly talk about the three phases of the AIP. The first phase is the elimination phase. And this is what, I mean, I'm guilty of doing this myself. Uh, we tend to use the term AIP to describe the first phase as a shorthand. Um, but really the elimination phase is the the major healing phase. So you're cutting out all of the potentially problematic compounds, but also super focusing on nutrient density, uh, eating as much diversity as you can within those healing AIP foods. It's also a holistic approach. So it includes that strong focus on lifestyle, getting enough sleep, managing stress, um, living an active lifestyle, but avoiding overtraining, all of those things are sort of implemented in that first phase of the AIP. The second phase we call the reintroduction phase, but it's really the, the respecting bio-individuality phase. And that is what we're going to talk about throughout this entire episode this week. But it's, it's the aspect of the AIP where you really get to identify your own trigger foods and then start personalizing your diet for your optimal lifelong health. So this is going through challenging or reintroducing foods in a methodical way, figuring out if that food is working for you or not. And then once you've kind of gone through all of the reintroductions that you're interested in, you might not uh, try some that you might say, you know, life without gluten is fine. I don't actually care to know how sensitive I am to it by by challenging it. So I'm just not going to do that. I certainly, given the reaction that I've had just from contamination with gluten, I'm, I'm not going to, to choose to do an actual challenge protocol with it. I feel like I have enough information to go on 
and stay gluten-free for the rest of my life. And that is my choice. And it's a type of choice that a lot of people will do. So once you've gone through as many reintroductions as you're interested in, you end up on something called the maintenance phase. So the maintenance phase is basically your personalized AIP or your AIP plus. It's where you end up after you've reintroduced foods and you've kind of figured out what works for you and what doesn't. And then that's what you follow. And so they they all can fall under the umbrella of the AIP. I think it can be misleading to, to use that shorthand of AIP to just refer to the elimination phase because then the maintenance phase of the AIP can sort of feel like, um, like you're not AIP anymore, but really what you are is you've used the automine protocol to identify your optimal personalized diet and you have figured out, you have figured out how to listen to your body. You figured out how your body speaks to you when you're, um, eating something that's suboptimal for you. And that knowledge that is gleaned from going through that methodical reintroduction phase and that healing process is what helps inform your choices for the rest of your life. I love thinking about it this way too, because then when you, for example, uh, get a cold or get something that activates your immune system and you need to kind of pull back where you might have been able to be a little more loose in the maintenance phase. It doesn't feel, if you think about it from this perspective, it doesn't then end up feeling like a failure or like you're going backwards or something like that. It's understanding how these foods work with your body individually and following that. And I think that's also one of the reasons why for me, this is not like a diet culture mindset, right? Like we've talked about that a lot. This is about really listening to and respecting your body and doing things because they make you feel good. And there are foods that do not make me feel good. (laughs) And so, I mean, I always say, oh, well, well, I'm not really AIP anymore. But in this context, I am because I still don't eat nightshades. I still, I don't think I could even group gluten into this because I'm celiac. So that's separate altogether, right? But um, when I think about avoiding nightshades, for example, like that is because I'm in the maintenance phase of AIP. And I've tried it a couple of times and it doesn't go well for me. Um, And it's a choice that I'm making to help my body feel better, right? And um, I think that's one of the things also that is important about the maintenance phase is when you're not having the same kind of autoimmune response and reaction that brought you to the AIP. It's also easier to make those decisions because of emotion or because of, you know, your culture or different kinds of things and knowing how your body is going to react and supporting that is really important. So, you know, I know we're going to talk about it, but for example, you know, when you are going to, for me, try out curry because I just, you know, I'm like, well, it's been six months. Let's give it a try. <laughs> Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> Well, um, not I, if you're super sensitive to nightshades. Yeah. Um, 
but I know that I'm going to need extra sleep. I'm going to need extra support from really nutrient-dense healing foods that my body responds well to, right? Like I'm going to have extra liver and B12 and broth and different kinds of things. And that's part of maintenance is knowing like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to choose this and this is how my body is going to react. And, um, knowing that it's not going to trigger me into an autoimmune response, but it's not going to feel good either, but that that's my choice. I feel like that's an empowering thing. And because I feel empowered to make that choice, 99.9% of the time, I don't. Because I, you know what I mean? Like as a rebel personality, I'm like, oh, I don't, I am given the freedom to say yes or no. And therefore, it is easier for me to say no versus like if somebody says no, I'm like, I'll find a way. I'll do it. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think one of the things that's really helpful to emphasize, you know, we're talking about reintroductions here in the context of using the autoimmune protocol as a way of healing and uh, and using those eliminations as a tool for then understanding our bioindividuality to those foods. But I think it's really helpful to emphasize for our listeners who don't have autoimmune disease or, you know, have found a lot of healing without having to do the autoimmune protocol or anywhere, any, anywhere in between that you can use this tool even if you suspect a single food might be causing you a, a problem or um, or maybe you have been following a, a different diet protocol that cuts out foods or food groups and you want to figure out if you can expand your diet beyond how you have been choosing foods for a while this is still a really great way to do that. If you have been, you know, following the paleo diet, for example, and you want to understand how you do with uh, some some grains or some legumes, you can still use this protocol to then really methodically, rather than just jumping in and going, okay, well, now I'm just going to make a, you know, I'm going to make a soup with, you know, eight different kinds of legumes in it. This way, by by tackling things one at a time and really being methodical with reintroductions, you can identify exactly how each one of those is working for you so that you can figure out what, what would be a good addition to your diet that allows for diet expansion, diet diversity that translates to nutrient expansion versus what's something that, you know, you're, you're just going to not touch with a 10-foot pole for the rest of your life. Versus something that's, uh, it wasn't great. Maybe it's okay for once in a while at a, you know, fancy restaurant or, you know, traveling. It might be something that's saved for holidays. That is the power of doing what is an elimination and challenge protocol. And as I mentioned already, this is what an allergist would do. So if you do, whether it's skin prick testing or a blood test for food allergies or blood test for food sensitivities, the like gold standard is to follow that up with an elimination challenge because all of those tests have about a 10% false positive rate. That means the test shows that you are allergic or intolerant or sensitive, but you really aren't. And about a 30% false negative rate, which means the test shows that this food is not a problem, but it really is. And so when 
dealing with those types of uncertainties in testing, that's why the elimination and challenge protocol is so beneficial because it it actually, the, the physiology behind it magnifies a reaction. So when you eliminate a food, um, so it's typically eliminated by, an allergist would recommend two to four weeks on the autoimmune protocol. We're typically eliminating for a more amorphous period of time, at least four weeks, um, but up to several months because we're dealing with a much more complex immune reaction than just an allergy or just a food sensitivity. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But when you eliminate a food that's been problematic for you, whatever compensatory mechanisms have been going on in your body, those also will, uh, will subside. So your body's been exposed to a food that it's reacting to for however long you've been eating that food. And it has these sort of protective mechanisms. So that can include things like certain immune cells that are restraining the reaction. Or maybe your gut lining is producing a thicker mucus barrier to reduce how much of it is getting into your body. Um, also, we can kind of adjust to how bad we feel. Um, so we don't even realize that we don't feel our best. All of those types of compensations are happening. So when you eliminate the food, you eliminate the need for those compensations. Those compensations decrease. And then when you consume the food again, um, it becomes much more obvious that that food is not working for you. You um, Suddenly, you were feeling really great because you didn't eat that food for a month. You eat that food, you feel kind of rotten. It's really easy to notice. Um, but also, when we're talking about immune reactions, the cells, the immune system can be sort of broadly divided into what are called effector cells. So those are the cells that would go out and gobble up a virus or uh, make a cancer cell kill itself or cause all of the, you know, histamine release that's responsible for a, a, the symptoms of a food allergy. And then we have regulatory cells. So these are cells that help to rein the immune system in. And what happens when we're having an immune reaction to anything, but to a food specifically in this context, is you have cells that are responsible for the reaction and then cells that are responsible for, they're like the middle management of the immune system. They're cells responsible for making sure that reaction doesn't go too crazy out of control. The cells that are responsible for the reaction have a longer lifespan than the cells that are responsible for restraining the system. So when you wait that sort of like ideal amount of time, it's basically anywhere between four weeks and about 10 months, um, then your cells that are responsible for the reaction are still there. They can still divide. They can still ramp up that response. And they're less inhibited by the cells that normally, or in the olden days when you ate that food that you were sensitive to all the time, those cells that are keeping the system constrained can't as well because they've died off faster. Um, and then their gut health is a whole other part of this. So if we're talking about a food sensitivity, the cells that are responsible for the reaction tend to hang out in the spleen. So when we're eating that food after a very long period of time, um, if our gut is healthy, we're getting, we're not getting the food antigens, right? The thing that those cells are, are reacting to 
into our bloodstream. And that's why, right, food intolerances where we're making non-IgE antibodies, IgE antibodies are the ones responsible for allergies. Any other antibody being produced against a protein in a food is called a food intolerance. Um, the, those, those cells, if they're not exposed to the antigen, they're just hanging out in the spleen, they're not going to react. And uh, the difference between a, a food allergy and a, a food intolerance is the food allergy cells live a lot longer and they're much finickier. So they, they can start reacting to a much smaller amount of antigen. So the very small amount that would get inside your body in normal, you know, normal healthy gut, there's still um, what's called antigen sampling. So there's like a sentinel system in the gut where we have immune cells living in the tissues just inside the body. And they literally like stick a, a, like an arm-like protrusion. It's called a dendrite th between the cells. And they literally like grab a little bit of like what's in your digestive tract. And they're, they're, they're basically looking for things that you're allergic to, but mainly they're looking for pathogens, right? They're looking for viruses, bacteria, parasites. So it's part of our normal immune system, just making sure everything's fine. It's, it's just, you know, it's, there's centuries just making sure everything's good. In the case of a food allergy, that small amount that's brought in is still enough to ramp up an immune response. In a case of a food intolerance, and a healthy gut and healthy digestive processes, that small amount often isn't. Again, there's, it's not like it's, it's not like it's one small and one's big. There is a, there's a spectrum in between. So there is some, again, bioindividuality that goes here, but these are all of the different processes that are behind an exaggerated reaction that makes identifying this food as being problematic for you really easy. It can feel, and there's certainly, you know, lots of articles on the interwebs that will tell you, you cut that food out and that made you allergic to it. It can feel that way. It can feel like, wait, I used to eat bread every day and now I eat the tiniest amount and I'm like throwing up what's up. And that certainly was my experience. Um, and it's because of this whole process where when you cut out the food, you were reacting to it. You just had these compensatory me mechanisms that were restraining the reaction, but it was still undermining your health. When you cut it out, you, yes, you lose immune tolerance to it, and that means you have an exaggerated response to that food, but you, what you're doing is you're unveiling a reaction that was already happening, so now you have that information to go forward. And so it can be very frustrating when you suddenly react in a really exaggerated way to a food that you used to eat all the time, but it's not cutting it out that made you sensitive to it. Cutting it out unveiled the sensitivity. This episode is sponsored by LinkedIn, the one social media site that doesn't give me anxiety. Oh my. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, LinkedIn is huge for small business owners and people looking to grow their business connections. Whether in the corporate world or not, LinkedIn is a way to network with authenticity. Learn more about people, learn from them, hire them, find job opportunities without having to endure the uncomfortable after work events. Unless that's your thing. But I think we all know it's not really either Stacy's or mine. Nope. 
But I will say I recently hired for my team and searching for the right candidates can feel like you're taking time away from actually working and growing your business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs makes it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. Wait, say what now? Yep. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. I can see how that would be so great to be able to get recommendations of people you share connections with. Totally. And with simple tools to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire, it's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash wholeview. That's linkedin.com slash wholeview to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And friends, I'm not going to belabor the point, but if you've been thinking about switching to Safer, I want to let you know that Beauty Counter's annual Black Friday sale has come early, and you can pop over to beautycounter.com slash Toth if you want to take advantage, or you can email me, stacy at realeverything.com. If you'd like to chat about what might be right for you, I'd love to help. There was an analogy you gave in a show a few weeks ago. I don't remember which one it was when we were talking about um, the small amount of something that you might eat having the potential for a large reaction. And I said something to the effect of how frustrating it was that like as gluten-free, a crumb of something that's picked up in a restaurant or something could be problematic. And you said it was so enlightening for me because I was like, I just don't understand why that little crumb can do so. But you know, and you were like, Stacy, think about the size of an aspirin. And what a powerful effect that has on the body in terms yeah. of, you know, blood thinning and pain reduction and all these things. And it's just that little bit. And now whenever I think about things. I'm, I always, I don't know, my brain really jumped to that in terms of being able to understand how a small amount of something can cause your body to react depending on your bio-individuality. I'm also really glad that you talked about beyond gut health, right? Because when I came to paleo, the only thing that I remember hearing about foods in general um, was gut health. And we talk a lot about gut health, right? But there's so much more that is happening, especially if you are creating antigens and your body is perceiving, like we've talked about gluten cross reactors and all these kinds of things as part of the reasons why all these foods are um, taken off of um, the plate, so to speak, with mm -hmm. autoimmune. But it's also important to understand those um, relationships the food have with one another for when you're reintroducing. Because if you know that gluten for me, for example, is obviously really bad, <laughs> like anaphylactic reaction, um, then I'm going to be even like more careful with foods that are going to have gluten cross-reactive. And when you were talking about it, I was thinking about, this is how old we are, because I know you're going to get this analogy too. I was thinking about the um, Matrix movies where they had those little like 
machines with like the octopus legs that would seek out the the guys that had left the matrix and were like popping in. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? No, uh, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's total. Yep. That's that Looking forward vision. To matrix Four coming out soon. I know. I'm so excited. I'm gonna watch <laughs> the trilogy with the kids, and then we'll watch the new one. It's gonna be great. That's um, our plan too. So. Anyway, I was thinking because I think you you even used the word sentinel, and sentinel, I was like, yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, it's like those bad those bad little machine guys coming after um, Keanu, right? <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm good. Off on a tangent now. Um, you know, it's a, actually a really good analogy because they also have the squid arms that grab things. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. They are now my new visual for dendritic cells. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's really helpful and I'm glad you brought this analogy back into this episode to recognize that depending on your sensitivity, it can be a couple of molecules. It can be smaller than a baby aspirin. Um, you know, think of people with peanut allergies who can't, you know, walk into a room where someone's eating peanuts on the other side of the room because of the very, very small amount of aerosolized protein from that can cause anaphylaxis. Even in the case of other types of immune reactions, generally we only see that level of sensitivity with allergies. But in the case of other types of immune reactions, it doesn't take very much to cause a reaction, which is also why the reintroduction process or the challenge procedure is designed the way it is. Okay. So I think we're going to dive into that specifically, um, both to answer Megan's question and to have a place where we've laid it all out. Cause like you said, we've, we've talked about this bits and pieces all over the place, but um, I think part of the problem is that one cannot just say, this is the schedule and this is what you need to do because this is so bio-individual. It really is about getting to a place where you're in touch with your body and your body feels healed and you feel empowered and in control that you can listen to your body enough to know how a reintroduction goes or not. I know for me, I remember eggs were the first thing that I brought back and I was kind of like, I don't know. I I don't know if anything's happening. (laughs) I was like, okay, nothing's happening. It's fine. Right. But like you kind of you have to be able to listen to your body enough to know if there's a reaction. Yes. Without getting into your own head, um, which I, I will say is a common experience. So um, if you are in your own head and you're like, wait, I think that's a thing. I think I might be reacting like that is that is a a normal um, a normal sort of emotional process to go through with with reintroductions, especially on the autoimmune protocol. Um, this is one of the reasons why I love being able to teach the AIP lecture series, because we go through the whys behind all of the eliminations in such detail, but we also talk about reintroductions in detail. And it's because there's a, there's a very wide range of normal when it comes to reintroductions in terms of the mindset and the emotional approach. So some people rush reintroductions because they're just they're just, uh, you know, uh, so excited to, you know, be able to eat chocolate again. And other people get scared to reintroduce because they feel so much better on the elimination phase of the AIP and they don't want to mess that up. And then there's everything in between. So um, in our last session, we had a 
fairly large group of students who had tried reintroductions and had nothing work and were coming to the AIP lecture series to try to figure out what they were missing, um, which was also really um, satisfying for me as the teacher to be able to help every single one of those students figure out what it was. It wasn't the same thing for every single one. So that's also a really cool part of that course. Um, but the, the thing that always frustrates and confuses students and is just a hard thing to wrap our heads around on the AIP is that I have never created hard and firm guidelines about when to start reintroductions. And it's because um, there's so much variability in terms of how quickly people see symptom improvement when they first adopt the AIP. I once talked to a young man with uh, reactive arthritis who got out of a wheelchair in three days. That is not the normal experience, but I often use him as an example for how quickly it can be life-altering for some people. Um, certainly what's more normal is several months. I didn't really start reintroductions for about 10 months uh, on the autoimmune protocol. So um, all of those timeframes are normal. Um, so the question is, do you feel ready? And how do you know that you might be ready? Um, I generally would ask the question, are you feeling better enough that you would be able to identify if a food made you feel worse. You don't have to feel all, you don't have to have your autoimmune disease in remission. You don't have to feel amazing all the way better. You just have to feel better enough that you could identify a food reaction. And that is, that is the thing to wait for. So I generally recommend waiting at least those four weeks because that's how, you know, how long the immune system and all of these compensatory mechanisms kind of need to chill out uh, so that you can have that exaggerated reaction because that makes it easy to identify the the food reaction. Um, and then uh, then after that, there's not a firm guidance. Um, but if you are seeing zero improvements after three or four months on the elimination phase, don't keep AIPing harder. Don't keep beating your head against the proverbial wall. Go work with an AIP certified coach or functional medicine doctor and start troubleshooting. Um, or come take my AIP lecture series and see what maybe we can, you can identify what the missing piece is through that. Um, but there's, there's not a reason to just keep, you know, doggedly pursuing the AIP if you're not seeing any improvements in that three to four month range. You might not be ready. If you're seeing gradual improvements, you might not be ready for reintroductions at three to four months. That's totally fine. So if you're seeing gradual improvements, by all means, keep it up. You're doing great. If you're seeing nothing, you've got, there's something else going on and it's time to figure it out. Uh, call in, call in the, the experts and, and work with somebody to, to try to figure that out. Um, and I will point to, uh, the episode that we did episode 338, where we talked about integrative functional and naturopathic doctors and how they approach troubleshooting in different ways. I would also say that you need to look at whether or not you're actually implementing all parts of the AIP. Mm -hmm. I know I've said this before, but I just want to reiterate. Um, I mean, I eliminated everything, but I did not make the lifestyle changes to increase my sleep and reduce my stress and um, try to relax. And that is a huge trigger for your body's inflammatory system. So it's not just about, like you said, just 
AIPing harder. Like I kept AIPing, AIPing harder. That sounds inappropriate, actually. Um, and it it wasn't enough. And I remember like breaking down to you. This is before you had your course and and all this stuff. You actually hadn't even published the Paleo Approach at this point. And you were like, well, Stacy, I happen to know <laughs> that you stay up late and you work really hard. And um, what are we doing about that? <laughs> I just, I mean, I was like in tears and I was like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> um, I'm over here nodding enthusiastically, which is not something anyone can hear since this is an audio medium. Um, but yeah, so that's actually, we cover troubleshooting in the AIP lecture series and where we start troubleshooting is like are are you actually doing all the different things of the AIP? Like not just eliminations, but are you doing the nutrient density? Are you working on sleep? Are you working on stress management? Is your activity level dialed in? Um, and we actually go through, we kind of call them the, the do's and don'ts of the AIP. So we look at uh, sort of veggie phobia, combining protocols, um, right? So things that would overly limit food diversity, um, and then all of the different aspects of lifestyle and make sure that that's all dialed in. I would say most of my students find their missing piece in there somewhere. So they find that either they were continuing to eat something that wasn't working for them, or they weren't fully doing the nutrient density piece, or it was something to do with lifestyle. That's much more common than uh, having severe gut dysbiosis that requires treatment or hormone imbalances or uh, adrenal fatigue requiring, you know, working with a functional medicine practitioner or persistent infection. Those are all things that can be underlying, um, you know, a stalled progress or lack of progress on the AIP. So, and those are all things that you want to work with a, you know, excellent healthcare provider to, to figure out. Um, but much more commonly, it's some missing piece of the actual autoimmune protocol, which is why I've created so many different educational resources around the autoimmune protocol is to help people really understand how robust and holistic the entire protocol actually is. So I will tell my reintroduction story, which is that I accidentally ate mayonnaise. And I don't know how many people like accidentally. I'm trying to figure out how you accidentally eat mayonnaise. It was in something. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I I think because it was in the house, it was something that Matt had prepared for me. Kind of like, you know, when we accidentally gave your daughter butter because we're the worst people in the world. Um, (laughs) And it was an empowering learning experience. (laughs) Okay. I really appreciate that that's how you approach it because I beat myself up a lot more than that about it. Um, But, you know, it was in the house. Matt was making it for the kids or whoever. And gave me something. I don't know. Well, also because we were making like AIP type mayonnaise. So I could have like seen, for example, a deviled egg and assumed it was okay because it was in our house and like it wasn't. So whatever it was, it was mayonnaise. So there were egg yolks in it and I didn't react. And I, I mean, egg yolks was a biggie for me because I just, I really like needed some flavor. Like I, you know what I mean? I just was at this point, this is way back in the day before there were all the resources that are available now and the wonderful like brands and foods that make things. I mean, for me, I couldn't find 
jerky. And now Paleo Valley has meat sticks that are AIP friendly. You know, like there was just like so many things that we had to hand make and do all this stuff. And I just remember like this light bulb went off in my head and I was like, it was okay. I'm I'm okay. Like I, I think I'm going to try to eat egg yolks for a couple of days and then I'll try to eat egg white and I'm going to see how it goes. And um, I mean, ultimately, I think we all know the story, which is that I've reintroduced a lot of different foods. But um, I remember talking to you about, is this okay? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and I had young kids at the time. So I knew a lot about what kinds of foods to bring in just from like a nutrient density and like ir- gut irritation and that kind of stuff perspective. But that's a little different than AIP. Um, and you were like, yeah, it's great, Stacy. This is a good thing. <laughs> like you're not, you didn't fail AIP because you ate a- egg yolk. It's going to be okay. And I also cried one time about soy lecithin being in a tea that I had drank. And I just thought that like the world was going to end and I ended up being okay. You know, so I think that there's, <laughs> Yeah, yep. it's always something, right? So I think that, you know, sometimes it's like accidental exposure that bring you to the point of that. But I think if you can be very methodical about it so that, you know, in the case of your daughter, you know, she had somebody else in the room to watch what might happen and, um, you know, put kind of safety protocols in place if you need to. Or, you know, if you might get headaches or something like that, like do it over a weekend where you're able to nap and recover. Like there's just a lot of things that I think you can set yourself up for success if you're methodical. And I'm sure you have lots of advice other than just accidentally eating things, which has been how I originally started reintroduction. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about the methodical reintroduction procedure while acknowledging that accidental reintroductions happen and it's okay if it happens. It's still empowering learning experiences. You still can glean excellent knowledge from it happening by accident. And I also have accidentally challenged things from time to time. Uh, especially while traveling. And um, and so even if it happens by accident, like think of it as a, just a unplanned learning opportunity and you get to understand maybe that food works for you. And as in the case of mayonnaise, maybe it doesn't as in the case of butter for my daughter. Um, but it, you're still you're still getting that knowledge, even if it wasn't the methodical way with the symptom journal and the all of the waiting and the 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 little bits that we're about to to go through obviously the best way to do this is one food at a time ideally about every 5 to 7 days and the reason for that is some ways that we can react to food especially food intolerances can have a delayed reaction up to about four days. So we want to make sure that we give our body that full four days to identify whether or not we're having a reaction and then try the next food. Um, It's helpful to, again, this is like a scientific experiment that you're doing on your own body in a cool, awesome science way. And so keeping, keeping what you would in a research lab would be a lab journal, but for you, it's a food and symptom journal can be very, very helpful. And it can be very, very helpful for identifying what I consider sometimes foods or slow burn foods. So they're the foods that one, you know, having it that one time for the challenge procedure didn't cause a reaction. But as you start to reintroduce that food into your diet and consume it more frequently, 
then you can have a reaction build over time. A food and symptom journal can be really, really helpful for identifying those foods. Without that, it can be really hard to say, okay, like I was able to eat potatoes once in a while, but as soon as I started to eat potatoes a few times a week, that joint pain started creeping back in. This is a personal example I'm giving. Um, I was like, wait, did you look at my journal? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what I've learned for myself personally is that if I have potatoes once a week, it's fine. But if I start to have potatoes more often than that, then I start to get joint pain. And so these types of foods are the hardest to identify. Um, And this is where being really methodical and continuing to keep that food and symptom journal can be incredibly helpful. Um, It probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways. Um, It's not a good time to do a a reintroduction if you don't feel well. So if you have an infection, you've had an unusually strenuous workout, you got less sleep than normal, you have an unusually high level of stress, any other of those types of circumstances that might make it difficult to interpret a reaction, just wait, just wait a couple of days. It's okay. You'll get there. It's, uh, you know, reintroductions in this methodical way takes patience and just think of it as a journey and every step of that journey, you are learning more and more about your body. Today's podcast is sponsored by Rothy's because I may have mentioned a few times before we love them. Yes, it is 2021, so nobody has time for uncomfortable shoes. And Rothy's delivers on that and on sustainability. Win-win. I have been obsessed with Rothy's for years, and I'm so glad they're back to give our listeners a discount. I actually bought myself a pair of their new slippers for Christmas. Don't tell anybody. So I (laughs) officially now own 17 pairs, two purses, and can tell you they hold up better than any other similar brand I've tried. I love that you can wash them, and they're a B Corp that uses sustainably made materials like upcycled plastic water bottles. Yes, that's why I love them too, and it's what I sent my mom for her birthday. She can't do the flat styles, but loves some of the more supportive styles, and I started wearing them when I injured my back because they're so comfortable and classy. The driver is my new favorite with the cushioning on the bottom. They have so many styles in tons of colors, so you can always find the right one for you. I feel really fancy in my points, but they're comfortable enough to wear all day, out running errands, just on my feet. Yes. To help you welcome the fall season in style, Rothy's is doing something special. That's right. They gave us the chance to share this super rare opportunity with our listeners for a limited time. Right now, you can get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash wholeview. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash wholeview. Head to rothys.com slash wholeview to find your new favorites today. This episode is sponsored by One Farm. One Farm is dedicated to sustainably creating plant-based products with USDA organic fair trade ingredients sourced directly from the people who grow them, including making the highest quality hemp extract on the market. We've done a few deep dives on previous episodes about the benefits of CBD, including our recent episodes on pain management and anxiety. It's a huge relief for both Sarah and me. CBD works by modulating our body's endocannabinoid system, which is an important signaling network within our bodies that regulates the interface between pain sensation, 
the emotional response, which includes maladaptations like depression and anxiety, and the physiological response, like inflammatory processes and the stress response. So our systems are literally primed for cannabinoids, which is CBD. I always think of it like its source. Mary Jane is definitely not what the kids are calling it anymore. (laughs) Um, As having some sort of harmful or toxic effect in addition to the beneficial properties. No, because one farm oversees every aspect of production, starting with growing industrial grade hemp on their USDA organic farm in Colorado, extracting hemp oil safely with carbon dioxide, and using a certified lab that tests every batch with a third party. It ensures that it's an incredibly pure product with just CBD. I love that they third party test so people can be assured that they aren't consuming THC unintentionally and that they don't use ethanol or any harsh solvents like heptane, hexane or acetone in their extraction process. And because their hemp extract is so pure, it has no harsh or grassy hemp aftertaste and never contains any particulates. Their CBD oil comes unflavored for people like Sarah who enjoy raw lettuce or for people with taste buds, lemon, peppermint, maybe cinnamon. Hey now, I resemble that. (laughs) I I use One Farm CBD every day for anxiety and fibromyalgia pain. If you too want to give it a try, you can get 15% off with code WHOLEVIEW at onefarm.com slash thewholeview. So let's actually describe the standard procedure for what would be called a food challenge. Then if that food challenge is successful, then it would be reintroduced into your diet. And this is not something I created. It's taken right out of the scientific literature. And it combines the standard challenge procedure for a food allergy where you're worried about a very small amount causing a very big allergic reaction very, very quickly. And it combines that with the standard procedures for a food intolerance reaction where a larger amount may cause a reaction over a much more protracted period of time. So maybe up to as much as four days after you eat it. So we start very, very cautiously in case there's an allergy. And then we sort of build how much we're consuming over that day of challenge and then waiting to see if there's reaction. So you're going to start by picking what food you're going to challenge and being prepared to eat it a few times in a day and then avoid it completely for a few days. So the first time you consume it, you're going to have a teeny, teeny, tiny little nibble. Think half a teaspoon or even less. Uh, And again, this is being super, super cautious in case you have a food allergy to this food. Wait 15 minutes. If you don't have any symptoms whatsoever, um, then you can try a little bit more. Think eight teaspoon, wait 15 minutes. If you don't have any symptoms, then you can try a slightly bigger bite. Think like a teaspoon and a half. And that's it for now. Wait two to three hours. And this is all just checking for food allergy symptoms. If you have any symptoms, stop. Don't don't keep eating it. If you're not sure and you're in your head and you're like, hmm, is my throat kind of scratchy right now? Is my nose kind of runny right now? Go on to the next step because that'll make it clear. Um, so if you're if you're not really sure whether or not you're in your head uh, or if you're really starting to have an allergic reaction, you can go on to the next step. And also worth stating, if you are a person who has had allergic reactions to foods in the past, do this with an EpiPen 
handy because you don't want to have to run to urgent care uh, for, uh, you know, antihistamines and an EpiPen if you can avoid that. So if you're a person who's had severe food allergies in the past, that is definitely part of your personal preparation. So let's say you've gone through the allergy part of the food challenge. Everything is cool. You don't have an allergy. Wait those two to three hours. Then eat a normal-sized portion of the food. You can have it by itself. You can have it with a meal. It doesn't matter. So have a full portion, and then that's it. So now, now you're done with your food. Don't eat that food again for five to seven days. Don't reintroduce anything else, at least intentionally, over that period of time. Monitor yourself for symptoms. And the symptoms to watch for is a very long list, and it basically includes anything out of the ordinary. Clearly, you're going to watch for any symptoms of any diagnosed conditions that you have returning or worsening. Anything gastrointestinal uh, is considered a reaction symptom that could be as minor as a tummy ache, that could be as major as <laughs> feeling like food poisoning, like it's so violently ill. Even changes in frequency of bowel movements, again, can be a gastrointestinal symptom that's worth watching for. Also watch for things like fatigue, energy dips in the afternoon, um, so things that are indicative of a stress response, um, having an unusual second wind late in the evening that makes it hard to go to sleep, those can be indicative of a reaction. Watch for things like cravings. Again, that's a reaction that would be linked to a stress response to that food. Um, so any kind of weird cravings, um, you know, the, the standard ones that are sugar, fat, salt, caffeine, um, but even things like pica, which is a, a craving for minerals, usually from non-food items like clay and dirt and sand and chalk, that can be um, a reaction. Having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, not sleeping well, that can be driven by an immune reaction. Headaches, anywhere from a mild headache to a migraine, dizziness or lightheadedness, increased mucus production, so like a runny, runny nose or having to clear your throat, um, coughing, itchy eyes, itchy mouth, sneezing, any kind of aches and pains, whether that's muscle or joint or tendon or ligament, um, any kind of changes to skin, rashes, acne, dry skin, um, small, you know, pink bumps or spots, um, dry hair or nails, mood issues. So having mood swings or feeling low or depressed or feeling anxious and less able to handle stress. Those are all things that can be the symptom manifestation of the immune reaction. So when we have an immune reaction to a food that causes a stress response and sometimes hormonal changes or neurotransmitter changes that can be then responsible for all of those types of symptoms. If you have a really bad reaction, I will point you to uh, actually quite an old episode, an oldie but a goodie of ours, episode 213, where we talked about more the context of like accidental exposure if you go to a restaurant. But all of the tips in that episode are really, really great for dealing with a bad reaction after a food challenge. And don't feel frustrated because a really bad reaction is still really helpful information. You're not going to rush to the next reintroduction because you're going to make sure that you've recovered from a, you know, failed reintroduction prior. And remember, especially in the context of the autoimmune protocol, 
you have a whole toolkit of healing at your disposal that you can return to a more, um, you know, return, you don't have to turn all the way to the elimination phase of the AIP, but go back to where, you know, your reintroductions are absolutely solid. Um, make sure you're focusing on sleep, rest, hydration. You've got a great toolkit for recovering if you happen to have a bad reaction. And again, if that bad reaction is an allergy, seek medical uh, attention because that's important. But it's okay. Don't be afraid of the bad reactions. Yes, sometimes they happen. Yes, they're miserable. That's still really important information because now you know there's a line you can't cross. That is going to help inform when you're a bunch of friends want to go to a restaurant, if you know that you that food that you're really sensitive to is going to be abundant in that restaurant and you can't risk even a small amount, that's really important information to know in making that choice. So even if you have a really bad reaction, fantastic information for you about your body that you can go through and let that information inform your future choices. The only other thing that I would add to the symptoms list to look out for. You said itchy eyes or mouth, and it didn't occur to me. I know this sounds silly, but I get tingly. Like my skin doesn't itch, but it like, yeah, it's like that initial feeling of like your leg falling asleep. Like that's kind of, oh, didn't mean to hit the microphone. I'm hand talking. (laughs) (laughs) Passionately pointing to how my face gets tingly. That's what happens with nightshades. And then it turns into joint pain. And then it turns into um, acne and other things. But I can identify a nightshade in something immediately. Even if I've, like, asked multiple questions and, like, okay, I think it's going to be okay. And then someone's like, oh, you meant vegetable peppers, not black pepper, the seed. Yeah, there's cayenne in there. Great. Great. Thanks so much. Um, (laughs) Happened to me. Oh, it's happened to me so many times. (laughs) Even like you walk through it, you're like, ugh. Okay. Anyway, I can, within one bite, not just taste it from a flavor perspective, but my skin starts to like tell me that it's in there. So I think, you know, as much as Sarah ran through an exhaustive list of symptoms, it's really, really paying attention to something that like doesn't feel like normal, right? Like, and, and because my skin tingling isn't going to kill me, my skin, well, I don't know, maybe it will eventually turn into an allergy that could be a problem, but I don't think so, right? Like that's my body saying the warning, (laughs) like warning, don't eat this bowl of soup. Um, and learning to listen to that. So even if you're experiencing something that didn't happen to be on this list, just pay attention. Um, and so I think, The only other thing that kind of I'm curious about is the suggested order of things. And I know because I'm looking at notes and looking ahead that despite all the things that I've done that are don't do what Stacey did, um, I happen happen to have done something right in eating mayonnaise first (laughs) because it was a very small amount of an egg yolk. So maybe you could walk through what are the like... What are the order of reintroductions? But also, I know that there's a method to your madness, right? Like there's, yeah. it's the it's the weighted benefits that we always talk about, right? Like the nutrient density and the and the benefits that your body would get from it, and combine that with, and the likelihood of it being a problem, right? So there's there's that there's got to be a balance there in how you've come up with this list. 
It's exactly how I came up with this list. So Megan actually asked what is most likely to be successfully reintroduced. And that is actually the calculus that went into creating the four phases of reintroductions. And I will say, uh, you know, I updated these a couple of years ago. Um, so we can point to the article on my website that has the updated list. Obviously, this is the updated list. Um, and that was updated in response to all of my gut microbiome research for the Gut Health Guidebook and the Gut Health Cookbook. Um, but it's also, it's helpful to also know that you don't have to follow these phases. There really is no right or wrong way to choose where to start. I can make an excellent argument to uh, start with the foods that you miss the most um, or start with the foods maybe that you never ate before because those are least likely to cause a, a reintroduction because your immune system's never seen them before. Or start with the foods that are going to be the most budget-friendly moving forward, right? There's, there's lots of different ways that we can approach this. There's no wrong way. Um, but in creating these four phases, basically what I did was look at the mechanisms behind how these foods can activate the immune system and then looked at things like frequency of food intolerance, uh, even though there's there's not as many really robust studies to look at that as I would like to, there are some that can help sort of inform what the frequency of intolerance is to these foods. Um, and then also looked at the nutritional merits. So a food that has a fairly low intolerance rate, the compounds in it are, for example, not going to be as likely to be problematic if you have you know, made really good progress in healing your gut and regulating your immune system. And then also that food has lots of great nutrients and is really good for the gut microbiome, right? Those are the foods that become the earliest reintroductions. And then you can see there's also variations of foods, right? So if you think about nuts or seeds, well, we can also start with the oils, which won't have very much protein in them. And we're, uh, immune reactions are to food proteins. Um, other types of reactions can be to other other compounds in the food, right? So a gut dysbiosis-driven reaction is can be to the proteins, but can be to carbohydrates or fats. So there are other ways that we can react to food that's not directly related to the proteins, but generally, the isolated and more and concentrated fats are going to be less immunogenic than the whole food version. So you can also see that there's, right, there's a progression in dairy products from phase one through phase four. There's a progression of nuts and seeds. And it's because we're also looking at, is there a safer version of this or a more likely to be tolerated by more people version of this that can go into phase one? So phase one includes egg yolks. Um, egg yolks, uh, or even if kind of a gray area on the AIP to begin with, actually all the gray areas, the, the, the foods that there really isn't quite enough science to make a, a super compelling argument to eliminate it or to include it. The, the caution is the better part of valor. So they're put into phase one reintroductions. So that includes egg yolks, legume sprouts, um, legumes with edible pods. So peas, green beans, uh, you know, those types of, those types of vegetables, cocoa and chocolate, uh, occasional coffee. So coffee once or twice a week goes into phase one, 
ghee, which is very purified dairy fat, ideally from grass-fed dairy, goes into phase one. Seed and nut oils goes into phase one. And then uh, basically the the class of spices that are eliminated on the AIP, which we talked about in a recent episode, uh, that are fruit, berries, and seeds. Nightshade-based spices are later, but things like cumin and coriander would go into phase one reintroductions. So those are all the foods that have some compelling nutrition, most likely to be tolerated by the biggest number of people. The second phase, and it's kind of a blurry line between phase one and phase two, are building on those, right? So coffee on a daily basis. If coffee once or twice a week is working for you, try coffee every day in phase two. Try the whole egg now. Egg whites come in this phase. Uh, Look at eating um, the whole nut and seed. Chia seeds, technically a pseudograin, nutritionally much more like a seed, are in phase two. Uh, If ghee worked for you in phase one, now try grass-fed butter. Um, And alcohol in small quantities, Um, you know, a a quarter glass of wine here, um, you know, using alcohol in a recipe where it's not all of the alcohol is going to burn off there, that can fit into stage two reintroductions as well. The third stage is, again, building on, you know, if the grass-fed butter worked in phase two, now try some what other grass-fed dairy preferably A2 dairy, um, but you could try A1 dairy in here as well. Now we're going to start working on some nightshades, the nightshades that have the the lowest level of glycoalkaloids are in here. So that's eggplant, sweet peppers, paprika, and peeled potatoes. And then some of the really beneficial legumes, um, especially if things like peas and green beans worked for you, now try lentils, split peas, and chickpeas. Those are the most beneficial legumes from a nutritional standpoint, a gut microbiome standpoint. And then the fourth stage is now getting a lot braver. Uh, This is like chili peppers, all the nightshade spices, tomatoes, unpeeled potatoes, alcohol in larger quantities, a whole glass of wine now, uh, gluten-free grains and pseudograins, any traditionally prepared legume could fit under here, rice, Um, And any foods that you have a history of having a reaction to, maybe some phase one foods that you um, weren't able to successfully reintroduce, you could try again in phase four. Um, And there's really no limit, right? Um, If you wanted to try wheat in phase four, you could. Um, Phase four is where you can put any food that you have eliminated to test your individual reaction to. Um, it's okay. Again, if there's some foods that you just, you just want to never test. Um, again, you know, I've had severe enough reactions to gluten contamination. So that's something touched something that touched gluten. I'm never going to, I'm never going to go through the, the reintroduction procedure with a piece of bread. It's just not on my to-do list ever. Um, but we so have it's okay. heard from other people, especially who tried in Europe where the grain is a little bit different or with a mm-hmm. fermented sourdough. Like it's not for you and me, but it could be for some people. Yeah. I, I really want to, I really want to emphasize that there is no food that is off limits for trying and reintroductions. If you want to try, I mean, even if you don't want to try a, 
you know, 14 day fermented sourdough that has super low gluten in it and you want to go straight to Wonder Bread, we can have some conversations about the nutritional merits of that. But if that's the thing that you really want to figure out, if it works for you, you can, you can try it. You can challenge it. It's, it, this is about learning your body and learning what your body tolerates and what is optimal for your body. Wonder Bread is never going to be a nutrient-dense food that's going to add meaningful amounts of nutrients to your diet. But under a Nutrivore approach, if you're eating a nutrient-dense diet that's full of other foods and you tolerate it because you know that because you've methodically challenged it, then I'm I'm not going to judge you on having you know, some, some wonder bread in your diet because it works for you and you have all of your other diet priorities dialed in and you're working on lifestyle. Like, awesome. I'm, I'm happy for you. That's fantastic. You have figured out your own body. The whole point of reintroductions is to respect bioindividuality, respect that even under the context of the autoimmune protocol, there are people who are able to eat gluten once in a while. It's never a nutrient dense food. I've calculated Nutrivore scores for a bunch of different grains and wheat products. They are not nutrient dense, but that's okay because in the context of understanding nutrient density and the role that all these nutrients play in the immune system, you're making great choices. So there's room for some less great choices. When you understand what your body needs to be optimally healthy and what it tolerates, you get to live in that world in between and you get to make some choices that are right on the line of tolerate. And that is your prerogative. You get to be human. It's okay to be human. The amazing thing about the reintroduction process is that you learn those reactions for yourself and for your own body. And you might even find, I mean, one of the things that's endlessly fascinating to me is when people can tolerate foods when they're on vacation and not any other time. And it's because of the interface between our stress levels in the immune system, how much sleep we're getting in the immune system, and then how we're reacting to foods. So there's also a, a really amazing aspect here where you might, you might be able to eat gluten when you're on vacation and not every other day. That is also part of the self-exploration that you get to do through the reintroduction process that's about understanding your body. And um, and it really needs to be done without judgment. The, the AIP maintenance phase looks very, very different for different people. And that's okay. It's about understanding what works for you. And I think the bringing in the stress aspect is really important because one of the things we often see are that people are afraid to reintroduce and that level of stress will not set you up for success, right? Like if you've convinced yourself that it's not going to go right, if you're focused on so much of the worst case scenarios and assuming the worst and all of that negative mindset, then I would strongly suggest you work on that before you start bringing things in because you're going to convince yourself that something isn't working that probably is um, because you are sure that that is going to happen, right? Like this part of this is a mental game that understandably, if you came from a place of being sick or in pain, like you don't want that again. And it's your body's natural stress response to fear that thing that caused the problem. 
But we need to remember that it was our body's immune response that caused the problem and not potentially not an egg yolk, right? And so we have to be able to try because if you put yourself in a box of avoiding all of these foods for an entire lifetime, you're really missing out on life. Like there are delicious things on this list. Like let me tell you, chocolate is amazing. Egg yolks are amazing. I am so grateful that I can eat dairy. I'm super sad that I can't eat tomatoes, but I love me some whipped cream. <laughs> I love me some ghee. Like, so I just, if I had been so afraid and only done the things that Sarah could eat, right? Cause Sarah and I have different things that work for each one of us and hadn't been willing to try to see what happened or, you know what I mean? I just, I, I really want to emphasize that there is a lot that goes into this mentally and it's understandable. There's no shame there. Like we've, we've all come up from a place where between diet culture and between the sickness that we have had, where our brain has now been conditioned to be afraid of the thing that when we removed it, we, we no longer felt badly. But now we need to remind ourselves that it, it was potentially not that thing. It was our own body's reaction. When you have an autoimmune disease, the thing that is kicking your booty is you. So, <laughs> you know, you got to yeah. You got to give yourself a chance to experience life a little bit more and also to let go of that stress. And sometimes it's not it's the collection of things, right? It's the combination of a few different foods and not getting enough sleep and being stressed and uh, you know, overtraining um, and when we go through the healing process, we, you know, support a healthy and diverse gut microbiome. We regulate our hormones. We regulate the immune system as a result. And we've dialed in the lifestyle and we figured out the nutrient density. We've addressed nutrient deficiencies. A food that may have been driving disease activity at the beginning of your health journey may not now. Um, so one of the the last things is, you know, when I was developing the AP lecture series, and if you find yourself feeling afraid, like, please come join my next class. The next one starts January 10th, 2022. If you're listening to this, not in real time, I usually teach two sessions a year. So please come join my next session whenever that's going to be. Um, but it's, um, it's really helpful to understand that, um, the, this is a really dynamic system and where we can end up in maintenance phase after say five years of the AIP is, can feel really different from after a year. So when I was developing the AIP lecture series, I realized that I had gone through a bunch of reintroductions and I had a whole pile of foods that I hadn't even tried again since my first year on the AIP. And it had been at that point, five or six years uh, five years, I guess, because now I've been, I'm entering my fifth year teaching this class. Um, and so I actually, as I was putting together the lectures, I was like, well, I better walk the walk and start trying some more of these reintroductions because I haven't tried them in so long. And I reintroduced so many more things successfully five years in that hadn't worked for me that I'd had reactions to in that first year or two. So also 
Just because something doesn't work for you now doesn't mean that it's not worth challenging again in five years. Again, something that I had a really, really strong reaction to, I wasn't going to be super excited about trying again. The only time I've tried tomatoes is on vacation. It went okay. And I feel like that's an okay vacation food. I'm not going to have that in my daily life. Like that's, it's okay. I don't, I don't miss tomatoes that much. It's fine. Um, and so the, the last kind of piece to this, although we still have to answer Megan's very specific question about what we have successfully reintroduced, um, is that, you know, there's nothing about the AIP that's a life sentence. And I think a lot of people approach it that way, approach it from a mindset of deprivation and the things that I can't eat that I'm going to miss forever. And so I think it's really, really important to emphasize, A, there's a way bigger variety of health-promoting foods that are included on the AIP than what you eliminate. And B, just because you eliminate it in the beginning doesn't mean you don't get to reintroduce it. And C, even if that reintroduction doesn't go well the first time, doesn't mean it's not going to go well later. So it's it is a journey about self-discovery. And the great thing is, is the more we heal, the more our bodies tolerate not the best choices we ever made. Okay. So what have I introduced? Obviously egg yolks, <laughs> whole yep. eggs. So I think everything from phase one, um, with the exception of recently pulled back coffee, right? So this is a good example of I'm in maintenance phase. I started experiencing some of the things you were talking about, mood issues, um, you know, not not getting good sleep, some of that kind of stuff. And I identified based on some testing and different things that like coffee needed to go for me. So mm -hmm. everything in st uh, first stage, but I had added that back for a long time. Um, second stage, everything. I don't really drink alcohol, um, so I, I also want to put this out there that I think we didn't really talk about it a lot today, but alcohol is a huge stress on your body, and um, I, when I say, like, I don't really drink alcohol, like, I mean, maybe once every two months, you know, I'll have, like, half of a glass of wine, and then I feel good enough after that, that like Matt will finish it for me. And maybe before you eliminated it, you drank alcohol much more regularly. Um, I find that it causes anxiety and disrupts my sleep. And it also makes everything else more difficult. So if I do drink alcohol, I have to rein in everything else so much more that yeah. it's not worth it for me. Like, right, like my body's doing so much to compensate for that. So while I can and have reintroduced it, it's something I just really rarely choose because I'm not willing, <laughs> like I would much rather have dessert. You know what I mean? But if I'm drinking alcohol, like I know that that's going to be too much. Like it's just all that sugar plus the alcohol, like I'm not going to feel well. So, um, and then stage three and four is where it starts to get mm, for me. So I can do dairies and I can do split peas, um, but I don't do well with lentils or chickpeas or um, any non-fermented legumes. So I can do like, tamari but um i i pretty much avoid um a lot of that and i can do paprika in small amounts but i don't do eggplant or any peppers sweet or spicy i can do peeled potatoes and i can do 
high fat grass fed dairy. I can do a little bit sometimes of just A2 milk. Kiddo really, they grew up in a house where milk was a staple. And so we now have A2 milk in the house. And when Matt makes, I don't know, something. He might use it for like flavor versus almond milk. And I can tolerate that like in a sauce or something like that. But I'm not like, I'm not making myself a hot cocoa <laughs> with A2 right. milk. Um, and then for the fourth stage, um, the only thing really is gluten-free grains and white rice, but not all grains. And I won't go into like the nuances of that for me, um, but rice-based ones I do okay with and um, quinoa I do okay with and buckwheat I do okay with. Um, but I have to be careful just because I'm celiac. I have found that I get um, cross-reaction gut and joint-wise with some of those gluten-free grains. And I think what's fun about answering this question is that I have actually a fairly different list. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, totally. So, um, you know, the things that I have reintroduced successfully are eggs, daily coffee, chocolate, all nuts and seeds. Almonds were not working for me for a long time, but now I don't eat a ton of almonds. Um, they're not the, the nut that I'm going to go just grab a handful of every single day, but once in a while they're fine. I've actually reintroduced quite a lot of nightshades, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. So I can, again, do potatoes about once per week. I seem fine with bell peppers and paprika, and I'll even sometimes have like chili powder, other nightshade-based spices, curry that includes um, nightshades. That seems to be fine with me as long as, again, it's sort of like on a... You should have seen me physically basis. react when you said chili powder. I like literally pulled back like, no, <laughs> oh, the horror. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I've, it's, it's that this is my newest reintroduction is um, sort of the, the nightshade based spices outside of paprika. Um, and again, I, I seem fine with them as long as I can do them once a week and I can do potatoes about once a week. Um, and that seems to be a good level where I'm enjoying the flavor and not having any symptoms or slow burn. Um, I've reintroduced a ton of legumes, um, basically everything except non-fermented soy Peanuts, definitely have a reaction to peanuts. And uh, kidney beans are so challenging to actually sprout and cook appropriately to reduce all the agglutinins that I don't eat kidney beans. But as long as the legumes are traditionally prepared, so soaked and or sprouted and then thoroughly cooked, I, it's not even that I seem fine. I feel better when I'm eating them. They are really super working for me. Um, and then I seem okay with all of the common gluten-free grains and pseudograins provided again that they're sprouted. Um, or if you're talking about corn, that it's an heirloom organic corn, uh, right? Oats we already talked about on the show, as long as it's sprouted and gluten-free, um, then they seem to work for me. I don't eat a ton of them. Again, they're not nutrient-dense foods, but it's nice to know that you know, if we want to go camping and have, you know, hot dogs cooked over the fire with hot dog buns, I've got lots of options for gluten-free hot dog buns that are going to work for me. And so 
it's, you know, my diet is still a Nutrivore diet, but I have, I have reintroduced a ton over the years. That's actually almost easier to say the things that don't work for me. Gluten, obviously I've already talked about that. Dairy, other than ghee, I can do ghee, but I can't do even butter. Uh, non-fermented soy, uh, peanuts, tomatoes I'll only eat on vacation, hot chilies. I think I just don't like them. I don't actually know if I react to them. I think I just don't like the pain that they cause and I can't do any alcohol. So that is another place of difference. Um, alcohol triggers rain outs for me and my kids call me Mrs. Corpse Tans when that happens and it's not worth it for me. I like having circulation in my hands. What? You like circulation? I know it's weird. I forgot peanuts. I I don't have a problem with occasionally having peanut butter. And in fact, I find it. Peanuts in- cause my mouth tingle. It's a tingle. It's very sad for you. But yeah. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep my dairy and my peanuts and you can keep your nitrates and, and your legumes. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I'm happy with my trade. Corn, I've actually reintroduced. Um, but it's one what? of those. I know. It's, I know. But it's so I started with and here's another thing that we didn't really talk about. But I started with starch because. We talked um, about corn being a beneficial potential for the gut health like a long time ago. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to try corn uh, because we had talked about like the starch, not having the protein, but then it doesn't benefit the gut health. And so I had already kind of played with corn starch as not being a huge problem. Um, It's not something I seek out. I will not eat like popcorn or corn like on its own, but I have been able to, like you said, with some gluten-free breads or different kinds of things that if it's there um, and that's my only option, like I can have a little bit and especially if I'm like dialing in other things. So um, look at us both still expanding um, at this point in our journeys, right? And we, you know, we're, we're both seeking medical professionals to look at our overall health, not just watch for symptoms. So I know we talked about that at the top of the show, but I want to remind you that this is not just something to like follow your own intuition about because reintroductions, we've talked a lot about, you know, listening to your body and blah, blah, blah. But when you're talking about an autoimmune disease, like that is the potential for really damaging health issues and some of the symptoms that you might be experiencing. So in my case, high white blood cell count, I might not know that that is increasing if I'm not seeing a medical professional and addressing that. So there are things that I would just really encourage you to, you know, continue to work with a medical professional to watch for some of the things that you might not be able to be aware of symptom wise as you add things back in. I know, for example, people who are on thyroid medication, you're going to want to let your doctor know that you're going to be changing things because they're going to want to run your numbers and make sure that everything stays the same. So, um, we can't do that for you. We're not medical professionals, but um, we encourage you to talk to one. And we want to thank you so much for listening to the show and to Megan for asking the question so that we could do a dedicated show on this because I know we've talked about it bits and pieces all over the place. But um, if you want to hang out with us and you want to hear more about what's going on in our lives, I got some stuff to share and we're going to pop over to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the whole view. We do an extra bonus show every single week, ad free for all of our fam over there. And we would love to have you join us just five bucks a month. And yeah, Sarah, anything else? Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. 
we love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Uh, I don't know if that's any better. No, it's in my ears. Oh. Okay. Uh, it's just, it's Adele's fault. Brat. <laughs> don't use that, <sighs> Matthew. You can put that in the bloopers. I give you permission <laughs> to put that in the bloopers because she got it first and then she had a little hissy fit in the middle of the night because she couldn't sleep because she was all congested. And so she woke me up to be miserable. So she was shedding viral particles into my face <laughs> while disrupting my sleep and suppressing my <laughs> immune system. So you can absolutely put that in the bloopers because it's her fault. I have this cold. She's a child. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.